Father, we thank you for this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. to be together. We're going to be continuing our series in Acts today, if you guys want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Uh, before we get going, there is one more thing I'm supposed to share with you guys. You know, we've been talking a lot about this as a staff, and it's come up in the last couple of members' meetings and some things like that, but, um, you know, one of the things that was most interesting or unique for our church in engaging COVID over the last year is that basically all of our volunteers stopped existing for a period of time. And uh, as, as things have opened back up and we've begun meeting again and trying to kind of figure out what is our, norm, our normal life look like for our church on, on, on the other side of this stuff, um, it really has been a very select hand few of people that have kind of stepped back up into serving in various areas of our church and keeping things going. So that's you. If you serve in children's or in tech or in the creative team or any of those things, like thank you. It's a gift. It's, it's such a joy to see you sacrificing of yourself to, to love and serve our church. But I want to encourage you guys, if you haven't started serving uh, in your church family again uh, since stuff has opened up more, I would encourage you to consider doing that. We, we, we have a whole host of needs of things that our pastors would love to see you guys step up and help with. Um, hospitality is a huge need right now. The tech and creative team needs people to help. I'm really, really praying that God um, would give us give us some people who are gifted in prayer who want to um, help me uh, kind of restart our prayer ministry and get those things going, as well as um, serving specific. I, know, I think I was all of them. I can't remember if I skipped any of them. There's a list there on the back. Um, I'd love for you guys if you're interested in getting plugged back into serving in some way, grab that list, sign up. Me or Craig will reach out to you, or just talk to one of the pastors. We'll get with you guys. But we really are. There's there are some just. Just some immediate needs for us to, uh, where a, f- a few handful of people in our, in our staff have really been kind of keeping a lot of stuff going. And so we'd love to see you guys dip your toes back into serving and being an active part of uh, what God's doing here week to week. So Acts chapter 16, one of the greatest privileges I've ever had in my life is to get to be a pastor, to get to um, get paid to hang out with people and tell people about Jesus and open up the word of God and proclaim it and try and remove barriers and distractions between people's hearts and the gospel of Jesus. And one of the unique ways God has gifted me in my specific life and call of ministry is that I've always done vocational ministry here in St. Louis, which is a, a, it's kind of a unique thing. Most, most pastors end up traveling a lot and they serve in different places and different communities. And God has allowed me to stay in this same city for for more than a decade of ministry. And that creates a really unique thing that I experience in ministry that I I love. And that's that's simply this. I was a youth pastor for a decade before I I took on this role with you guys. And, and and, And really quick, just confessionally, I do have to say this. Middle schoolers are the best human beings on planet Earth. They really are significantly better. If God would allow me to spend my time with 7th and 8th graders instead of you guys, I would. Uh, sorry. <laughs> but seriously, I, I, I loved that time I got to spend it. You're all going, that's offensive. Sorry, it's what it is. If you want me to enjoy this better, you should be more like a 7th grader. Bust out your Yu-Gi-Oh cards in between gatherings, I guess. Anyway, um, I got to be a youth pastor for 10 years, and now I serve in this role, and I love it, and it's, it really is just a joy, a gift, a privilege. 
But because of serving in vocational ministry in the same community for a long time, I get this unique joy and also sorrow of seeing the long-term picture of people's faith journey. You know, there are people who I knew them as fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh graders who are now married and have kids and are uh, living, you know, living their adult life. And man, there, it is, it is a wide variety of experiences between those who have faithfully followed Christ and fallen in love with him and found continued freedom and joy in life in their faith journeys. And those who haven't, those who have uh, man, have gone after the ways of the world. Those who have stepped into addictive or destructive cycles or have found themselves lost in the pleasures of this world and numbing themselves out, as well as people who have just turned from Christ and seem to be relatively enjoying their life apart from him. And I, I have this experience relatively often where I'll wake up in the middle of the night or I'll wake up in the morning with just just a face or a name just burning in my heart to pray for. Maybe someone I haven't seen in nine or ten years. So the last time I saw them, they were an awkward middle schooler, right? And I'll look them up on Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is, and I'll, I'll you know, for the joys of social media, I get to see what some of these people's lives look like. And I just, I say all this to, to say this, to kind of bring us into this text. One of the most basic truths of the gospel that I've learned over my time in ministry is that if you have breath in your lungs, God is not done with you. Our God plays the long game. Our God does not move past people. Our God is not deterred by the circumstances of this world or the reality of people's circumstances. I literally can't count. I tried to sit down this morning. I was praying over it. I lost count of the number of times I have sat in a parking lot of a a coffee shop or something, crying in my car because of the beautiful testimony of sitting with someone who was far from Christ for years and now has come back to him and found life and found joy and found freedom. Because that's the truth of the gospel. If you are alive, God is not done with you. He's not past you. It does not matter what circumstances you have brought on yourself or have been brought upon you. I think we're going to see that beautifully in our text today. This truth that our God works through all sorts of ways to bring all sorts of people to himself. And he never ceases that work. We're in Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 11. And this is a long one. So get in here with me. It says this. So setting sail from Troas, we made direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. 
Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received the order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But it was the, when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent and let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and took them out and asked them to leave the city. And so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and then departed. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father God, it is so good to be here with you today. Father, as we take a few minutes to discuss your word, to envision the story of a church not all that unlike ours that came before us. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you, you would give us clear eyes to hear from you today. Holy Spirit, for those of us who are distracted by the, the noise of this life right now, the things going on in our life, the worries, the concerns, the pains, the hurts, even the real ones, even the heavy ones, God, I pray that you would give us quiet, open hearts to hear from you today. God, for those of us who have become, if we're honest, just jaded and numb to the gospel, having heard it over and over and over and over, I pray that you would scrape those calluses off, give us fresh, tender hearts, renew the joy of our salvation, renew the joy of the gospel message in our hearts today. Jesus, we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So, that's a long one. I told you it was a long one. It's a good one. Here's, here's, here's what I'd like to do today. 
I'm going to go back through this story. And this, this story, this is the whole story of, that Acts gives us of the birth of the church in Philippi, which is pretty significant historically for a couple of reasons we're talking about. But we're going to kind of divide this up into the four main scenes that Luke hands us, kind of describing the birth of the Philippian church. I'm going to specifically kind of zoom in on three of those scenes. And we're going to just see some of the amazing ways that God works to bring all kinds of people to himself. We're going to talk about how God can overcome strategic uh, inconveniences or problems. We're going to talk about how God engages spiritual opposition, and we're going to talk about how God engages suffering uh, or a real, actual cultural oppression to advance the gospel. And that's going to lead us, I think, to this beautiful picture of just the amazing diversity of the kingdom of God. And I know that's maybe kind of a weird word to use, but I really think it's going to draw us back to this deeply fundamental truth of who God is, how he engages us, and why we even have a gospel. And we'll end our time with just some reflection on that. Sound good? What I really think, and I've already said this two or three times, but what I really think we're going to see about as clear as you can in a narrative in this text is just this idea that, that God is working in every way you can imagine to reach every kind of person you can imagine for the kingdom. God is not deterred in his work of advancing the kingdom. He does not see obstacles the way you and I see obstacles. He does not see people the way you and I see people. And the kingdom of God cannot be stopped. So, Remember our story where we are. We're in Acts. We're in Paul's second missionary journey. I think I have a map here. What we've seen up to this point is that Antioch sent Paul and Silas on kind of this, this not really a mission trip, kind of this pastoral care trip where he traveled up, starting in Antioch in the top right there, traveled up into Galatia, visiting the churches that they had planted during the first missionary journey. While they were in the region of Galatia, visiting and encouraging these churches. Uh, Paul met Timothy, and he comes and kind of joins the team. And in the midst of that, God begins to lead them to something new. Paul gets this sense, man, we're not just doing a care trip. We need to go and preach the gospel. And he begins to make his way across Galatia into what was called Asia back then. All of this, by the way, is just modern-day Turkey. But he's making his way uh, to, to the left there, across Asia, across Galatia. And what we saw last week, was the Holy Spirit just continually kind of moved them along, kind of fencing them in. Don't go here. Don't go here. Leading them along, leading them along until they land in this port city of Troas. And you can kind of even see a little bit of, of maybe Paul's frustration or his expectation when they've made their way across this entire region and the Spirit keeps stopping them from doing the ministry they feel called to set out and do. But in Troas, Paul has a dream. And in his dream, a Macedonian says, come and help us. Come and help us. And they, they discern the word and the command of Jesus in this dream that God is calling them for the second missionary journey to cross over the Aegean Sea into Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece. The, the rest of this missionary journey will take him through the country we know as Greece. So as our text picks up, 
they say yes to the word of the Lord, and they cross over the Aegean Sea, and they kind of work their way through a couple cities. They land at a port. They move to a larger port. But the story really picks up when they get to Philippi. Now, I, I, don't, I don't blame you if you're not just super up to date on ancient Roman like cityography and geography. That's fine. It's not my hobby either, right? But it makes a ton of sense that they kind of move straight to Philippi. And the reason is this. Philippi was one of the most important cities in Macedonia. It was one of the largest and most influential cities. And beyond that, the text tells us this, but history also tells us this, Philippi was not just a city, it was a Roman colony. Now what that essentially means is, remember, the Roman Empire was just that. It was an empire. Even though it was big and spanned across the world, most of the people who lived in the Roman Empire were not Roman citizens. They were Roman subjects. They were conquered people. But a colony, a colony was essentially a little Rome outside of Italy. So for Philippi to be a Roman colony meant a couple things. First and foremost, it meant that whoever was born in Philippi was born a Roman citizen, just as if they had been born in Italy, which was a huge deal. Beyond that, it meant that Philippi actually had representation in the Roman government. They were able to elect senators to send to Italy. They had a, a piece, a voice to speak into the policy of the Roman Empire. Subjects didn't have that. It didn't matter how important Jerusalem was as a city for the Roman Empire. Jerusalem was a conquered, subjected city. It had no voice in anything that happened in its community. Philippi is different. Philippi is a Roman colony, and it's a well-known one. Originally founded, by the way, essentially as a retirement gift for Roman military veterans. If you served with a certain number of years of faithfulness, you were granted the right to buy in to the Philippi colony. The result of that is that Philippi was renowned in this day for its patriotism. The vast majority of the citizens of Philippi were either retired veterans or the children and grandchildren of retired veterans. The people of Philippi loved Rome. They were known for their patriotism. So Paul and Barnabas make their way. They think these are guys who are not from here, right? They're from the middle of nowhere by Roman standards. They're from out in the boonies. They go, well, God's calling us to go to Macedonia. And the city most people would know in Macedonia was Philippi. So they go straight there. And then we're given these three specific scenes. We, we see Paul and Silas meeting with Lydia at the river. We see them meeting with the slave girl on the road. And we see them engaging the jailer while arrested. These are kind of the three main scenes. And there's a fourth scene that closes it out. So in this first scene, we're met with the first major obstacle in this journey. See, these guys came here all hyped on what God was calling them to do. The Holy Spirit had supernaturally drawn them along their way and brought them here, right? I mean, they tried to go here, they tried to go there. The Holy Spirit boxed them in. He appeared in a vision and said, go here. Like, these guys are ready to come and preach the gospel. God has brought them to these people at this time, at this place, right? But when they get to Philippi, they're immediately faced with a strategic obstacle. There's no synagogue in Philippi. Now, up to this point, 
The main way that Paul has engaged in mission work in these cities is to find the Jewish population, preach the gospel to the Jewish population, to build up a baseline of theologically astute and trained people whose eyes might be open to the truth of Jesus' Messiahship, and from there branch out to Gentile audiences. We've, we've, we've had one record up to this point of Paul entering a city that didn't have an existing Jewish population, but for the vast majority of Paul's missionary work, his first work has been at the synagogue. But he gets to Philippi, and there is no synagogue. And the reason we know that is it says, on the Sabbath, he left the city and went down to the river, supposing he would find a place of prayer. Now, this refers to a very specific Roman law. Judaism, as a religion, was protected. It had a special status, protected under Roman law, because we've talked about this before. Rome prided itself as being very religiously free, which is a very interesting thing because religious freedom in the Roman Empire is very different than the way we think of religious freedom. But it didn't make allotments for monotheistic belief. Religious freedom in Rome worked like this. You can believe whatever the heck you want to believe as long as you just add it into the mixing pot of all the different weird religious beliefs we have. As long as you can just mix it all together, we're good. But Judaism was a well-established, empire-wide, monotheistic religion that said no, We can't, in fact, mix it together with all that stuff. And Rome realized it was pointless to try and stomp this belief out. It only made them stronger. So instead, they gave them a special protected status and said, you can build your synagogues, you can have your temple, as long as once a year you come and offer sacrifice to Caesar and proclaim him Lord, then you're good. You can go to temple, you can go to synagogue, you can do your thing. In fact, if you're in a city that doesn't have a synagogue, we will designate that on the Sabbath day, any Jew can gather in front of a body of water and worship Yahweh unmolested. As long as it's in front of a body of water, the ocean, a river, a pond, a lake, doesn't matter. That will be your set-aside designated spot in case there's not a synagogue. And the the thing you might say, like, why isn't there a synagogue? One of the rules was there had to be 10 faithfully practicing Jewish men to start a synagogue in a particular city. So Philippi, this huge metropolitan city, bastion of Roman culture, doesn't have 10 Jewish men who can establish a synagogue. The Jewish population in this city is that small. But they do have a river. And so the few people who want to worship Yahweh on the Sabbath leave the city and go out to the river and begin to pray. And here we're introduced to this woman, Lydia. And I love the way the text talks about Lydia. The way it says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. What a beautiful picture of the Holy Spirit opening her heart. A testimony to the work of God to call us unto him. Amen? And Lydia gets, receives the gospel, gets saved. Her and her whole family are baptized. And Lydia essentially, her and her household, become kind of the anchoring point for this new church that God is building in Philippi. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but Luke is giving us a lot more details of how a church is planted in Philippi than he has in any of the stories up to this point. We've gotten stories of Paul preaching in those things, but this is the first time they've really zoned in on the converts, the people who make up a church that Paul planted. And first, we're introduced to Lydia and her family. And we can know a couple things about Lydia. The first one is, 
She is, she's given this designation of a worshiper of God, which was an official designation in the Jewish religion used to talk about Gentiles who were in the process of converting to Judaism. So we know that Lydia is a Gentile. We know that she, at some point, has heard of Judaism and believes in Yahweh, believes in the message of the Torah, and is in the process of trying to become Jewish. So something about her, she she already has senses of who God is. Her heart is already open to the gospel, right? As, as we find when Paul comes and preaches and the Spirit draws her in. The other thing we're told about her is that she's a seller of purple clothing. Essentially is saying she sells luxury clothing to rich people. This was a pretty established industry in Philippi at this point. And you can Google it and read about it. It's very interesting. They ground up seashells and it was this, this whole deal. But, but she ran a luxury business. And there were several of these in Philippi. We also know that she was single. Now, this is interesting. See, in Roman culture... If a woman was widowed or divorced, but had business holdings, she had some legal protections to remain kind of the head of her household. That didn't exist in Jewish culture, but Roman culture had some legal protections for women who found themselves in a precarious situation. They, they have a valuable business interest, but no, no husband for whatever reason. So for whatever reason, whether it's widowing or whether uh, it's divorce, Lydia is single. She's the head of her household, running a business, in the process of pursuing after Yahweh. And in that context, God brings her to salvation. A single, wealthy, Gentile, female business owner. This is our first family in the core group of the church at Philippi, right? A really interesting, beautiful image, which takes us, I think, perfectly to scene number two. As, as Paul is making his way to this place, we're introduced to the second character. It says she's a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. Now, we miss this in the English, but the actual language used to describe her is she's called a python girl which is a very strange phrase connected to a specific spiritual belief that existed in ancient Greece at this time, which is essentially this, that demons of divination that took on the form of serpents would travel the land and find young girls and possess them and give them fortune-telling abilities. This, this was actually kind of a well-known legend or idea in this world at this time. And these python girls, as they were called, were actually highly sought after and were bought and sold as a commodity. Slave traders would use them and use their demonically influenced fortune-telling as a way to gain money. It's very kind of disturbing if you read about it, but oftentimes these young girls were dressed to look like snakes or were kept uh, in, pin, in bins, like with live snakes and things like that. It's very creepy. Imagine like someone on their way to a My Chemical Romance concert. But th- this, this young girl is following, some of you are like, I don't know that band. Well, you're gonna have to Google it and then you'll go, hey, it's exactly right. She starts following Paul and Silas around for days, seemingly prophesying about their ministry. And this is this is a weird scene, right? She's following them around saying, oh, these are messengers of the Lord most high and they bring you the message of salvation. And, and when you first look at that, you're kind of like, okay, I mean, that's true, right? Like that's, I guess that's, it's, you know, no press is bad press, I guess, right? Like, but it says, and I love this, it, it says that Paul gets so annoyed by this 
that he casts out the demon. After days of snake girl falling around going, oh, the messenger's the Lord most high. He's like, be quiet, get out of her. And then the demon does. The demon flees and she's freed. This is a really weird scene, right? Weird for a couple of reasons. I think the first one is our, 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 our surface reading, we kind of do this like, I don't get what the big deal is. It seems like she's affirming their message. And on, on a level, she is. On a level, she actually is speaking to what they're doing truthfully, right? But everyone who was involved with these Python girls knew that their powers were demonically influenced. That's not necessarily like, you know, that's not necessarily the endorsement you want on your ministry if you are serving Jesus, right? So that in and of itself is a problem. But the other piece here, and this is interesting, is that in a really subtle way, this demon is actually seeking to undermine Paul and Silas's message. And again, we miss this in the English because this is the kind of language we don't really use. And so it just kind of all blurs together for us. But the way she specifically formulates this, these are messengers of the God Most High. They bring you the message of salvation. The way she's actually saying this is actually using a couple specific terms that that try and kind of mesh the gospel message into the existing hierarchy of the Roman pantheon. And to the, mess, to the people in that culture, they would have known exactly what that meant. Oh, there's a new traveling preacher here with a new like add-on, like a new plug-in that we can throw into our religious potluck. Like that sounds cool. Actually undermining the message, right? So Paul casts out the demon, which, which kind of sets up the, 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 the sense for the whole third scene that we'll get to in a second. But I want to point out just a couple things here. The first big one is this. It's weird. It's a weird scene. Paul sees this poor, demonically oppressed girl who is a slave, who's being mistreated, right? Being dehumanized. And it takes like days of annoyance to build up before he acts on this thing going on. But when he does, it's immediate. The demon leaves. The girl is freed. And we're introduced, or not introduced, we're kind of given picture here of the second way that all the, 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 the bad scenario that is Philippi is coming together. Not only did they show up at a city that doesn't have a Jewish population and isn't terribly interested in Judaism, but now they're experiencing like literal spiritual warfare in the form of demonic oppression. Now again, Paul's already experienced demonic oppression over the course of his missionary journeys, right? Like he dealt with Simon the magician in the island of Cyprus. But that was in a context with an established Jewish population in an established synagogue system and an already established Christian church. Here, he's already trying to overcome the first obstacle of, man, this thing wasn't like, it just didn't work out strategically the way I thought it would. And now there's also demons involved, but still we see God overcome. We see God show up in power. Now, it's easy for us to miss this because Luke goes out of his way to talk about the conversion and baptism of Lydia and the jailer. But but I want you guys to hear this. For the ancient writers, the writers of the New Testament, for guys like Luke, there is no difference between the idea of being delivered from a demon and delivered from the curse unto salvation. They, they, They would not have they would not have conceived of a concept where Jesus would supernaturally free someone from demonic oppression and not 
free them unto eternal life in his kingdom. Those terms were used very interconnectedly. And so the assumption in the author here is that this young slave girl is a part of the kingdom. And so now we have the second part of our core group. We've got the single, wealthy, Gentile business owner. And now we have the demonized slave kid. We're getting off to a good start, right? (laughs) Which takes us into scene three. This whole thing with the Python girl stirs up the whole city. It ends up getting them arrested, and not just arrested, but actually beaten with rods. The Roman guards who guarded Philippi, because it was such an honored city, because most, like almost all the people living there were Roman citizens, didn't carry the normal like cat of nine tails whips or swords. They carried these bundles of rods that were tied together with leather thongs. So imagine like five or six dowel rods that were bound together with twine. These were the symbol of office of city guard in Philippi. So they take these things and whip these guys across their bare back for 40 lashes. Pretty intense. I mean, maybe not the same level of intensity of a cat of nine tails, right? But this is wild. They strip them in the city, beat them with rods, and then throw them in jail. And we're told they're thrown into the inner jail. And a Roman jail would have had two sections, an outer circular room in an inner egg-shaped room. The inner egg-shaped room was sunken down underground, had no outside windows, and had, generally speaking, no lights. It was pitch black 24-7. And it was specifically designed to be psychologically torturous to prisoners. You put them in the inner prison because you wanted to teach them a lesson to never get arrested ever again. So Paul and Silas and Timothy are brought into the inner prison and put in feet stocks. And the way these feet stocks would work in these inner prisons is essentially they would force the prisoner to sit at an angle, sit on their butt with their feet elevated about six inches off the ground. Essentially just creating a way where there's no way for them to comfortably sit or lay. If they lay down, the blood rushes to their head. If they sit up, they're at an awkward angle. It's just designed to leave someone miserable, specifically for the purpose of just being like, you don't want to end up here. Never come back here. So they're stuck in this inner prison after having been beat within an inch of their life by rods for doing the work of the ministry of setting free a demonized girl, right? And the text tells us that about midnight... As Paul and Silas are leading the prisoners in prayers and worship singing, which is in and of itself a whole sermon, that these men, hours past getting beat within an inch of their life for doing the right thing, are leading a bunch of convicts in worship and prayer. That in and of itself, right? But in this scene, an earthquake happens, which is not terribly strange. Philippi was prone to a lot of earthquakes. It's what, ended up, it's what ended up destroying the city, actually, eventually. But an earthquake happens. But this earthquake is so specific that it busts all the doors open and, and knocks open all the chains. Now, now, these stocks were all connected to a single unified chain that was hooked into the wall with one lock. And so something happens. That thing busts loose. All the doors are open. All the prisoners are released. This kind of actually, by the way, harkens back at this point to Acts like four and five when the apostles are doing ministry and get brought before the scene. It's kind of kind of connected in a little way, but they're sitting here. The earthquake happens. Everything busts loose and they're free. And the guard wakes up and he walks into the room. It's pitch black and he can just see. The doors are open. The locks are busted. I'm dead. I'm dead. 
For a Roman soldier to lose charge of a prisoner literally meant death. Literally meant, like, that's the death sentence. So he draws his sword and gets ready to kill himself rather than facing a Roman execution. And out of the darkness, Paul's voice goes, Hey, bud, we're still here. We're all just sitting here hanging out. Imagine how good that hymn singing must have been, by the way. That those prisoners were like, I'll just stay here and see this out. I kind of like it. I want to see where this is going. (laughs) But that's what happened. Rather than fleeing, everyone sits there patiently, waiting for the guard to come lock them back up. Which is insane. As you can imagine, this is God's way of getting this guard. and the demonized slave girl, to now including the good patriotic Roman military officer and his family. What a group. This is their core group they're planning the church with. I, guys, I don't know. I went through church planning assessment. It was a thing I had to do back in the day. Building your core group, it's a very specific thing they train you for. It's a big deal. I'm, not, I'm just going to say it. This is not an ideal core group. This is like a recipe. (laughs) This is a recipe for a conflict-ridden church, right? And yet this is what God does. And then the story closes out. They try and make Paul and Silas leave. And Paul and Silas are like, hey, we're Roman citizens. You didn't give us a trial. That's illegal. And it's a whole big deal. And they come and they apologize to him. Paul and Silas go, encourage the church, and then leave. It's a beautiful story. And here's what I love about it. The story ends, the way it all lands, the way it comes together is this. After everything, after the strategic mess up, well, there's no synagogue, but God saved Lydia. After demonic oppression, a demon is following us around trying to undermine our preaching, and God saved the little girl. After the city itself rises up and beats them within an inch of their life and locks them in prison, God saves the jailer and his family. And at the end of the day, When these guys leave this city, probably still bruised, probably maybe still bleeding, right? There is a church of Jesus Christ in Philippi. There is a family of God in this pagan city. There is a group of people washed in the blood of Jesus, saved from their sins, people who you and I will meet at the wedding feast of the Lamb. That when Christ returns and calls his unto himself, we will get, by the, by the grace of God, to feast and worship with Lydia and her family. And a young emo python girl. And a Roman guard and his family. We get to worship God for eternity with our brothers and sisters who lived in this church family because of the work God did to overcome obstacle after obstacle. What a testimony. What a beautiful story. Guys, this is what it gets, like this is what what it is. God works in all kinds of ways to bring all kinds of people unto himself. God does not cease working. God does not view obstacles the way you and I view obstacles. I mean, I don't know how Paul and Silas engage this, but I can tell you my own weakness. If I was as hyped up as these guys were, 
off a supernatural vision God had given me to go to a city and preach the gospel. And a couple weeks into it, I was locked up in prison, beat with an inch of my life. I would be having a very particular conversation with God about his call to go to that city. I don't know if I would be sitting there leading the prisoners in hymns. I think I'd be very upset. God, you told me to come here. This has been terrible. Nothing has gone the way it's gone up to this point. I walk in a city, I preach, people get saved. I got yelled at a couple times, it's gotten intense. But, but this is like everything. Everything I experienced over the whole first missionary trip, all the hard stuff that happened spread out over months, city to city in Galatia, happens in like a week at Philippi. All of it. That's really intense. That's a lot. And yet, when they leave, there's a church. Because God was doing his work. Because God overcomes obstacles. And look at the church that was there. What a church. What a diverse church. Imagine their fellowship conversations over coffee. I don't know if they drank coffee back then. But you know what I'm saying. What the heck? What on earth would Lydia and that girl and that guard have in common to talk about? Besides Jesus. What on earth could draw those three people together into intimate friendship and relationship apart from the blood of Jesus? Can you imagine three more different people sharing a church family? And yet, that's who God called. That's who God brought together. That's the church God was building in Philippi. Because the reality is, beloved, our God works in all kinds of ways to bring all kinds of people unto himself. People from wildly different backgrounds, people with wildly different struggles, people with wildly different experiences of the world. Rich and poor, liberal and conservative, spiritually aware and spiritually blinded, all sorts of people, all kinds of people. I want to point you guys to two texts. Both of these were said by Paul and then by Peter later on in their ministries. These guys served together, pastoring the church in Rome near the end of their lives. They were both martyred while serving as the pastors in the church in Rome. And in some of their later writings, close to their death, Paul in a letter to Timothy and Peter in a letter to the persecuted Roman church, that they wrote this. Paul said this in 1 Timothy 2. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings may be made for all people, kings, anyone who's in a high position, that we may all lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, because he desires that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And Peter, writing to the persecuted church, in 1 Peter 2 says, But do not overlook the one fact, beloved, that what the Lord one day is is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Both these teachings were given by different men to different people in different contexts. 
Paul writing to a young like pastor he was discipling who was dealing with a church that was really divided and he was calling them to be a church of prayer, a church that prays for all people. Peter writing to a persecuted church that's experiencing suffering, telling them to be patient as they await the Lord's return, right? But this common theme is in both of these things. God has a deep and abiding, patient love for all people. For all people. His desire is that all would come to know him. All would experience repentance. Now, if you're in this room and you're the theology geek, your temptation right now is going to be to be distracted by this instead of drawn into this. And I want to challenge you on that. I get it, right? It's easy to look at a text like this, especially right, like in a more reformed context like ours, and go, well, how does this interact with God's sovereignty in regards to salvation and his perfect will for all people? Will it not come to pass? And that's a beautiful thing. It's a worthy discussion. And by the way, if you want to geek out on that, like, hit me up. Let's go out and get a coffee and geek out on theology and God's sovereignty and salvation. It's fun. It's beautiful. It's a worthy conversation. But for the purpose of today, I want to ask you to set that part of your brain aside for a second to reflect on this truth, the simple truth of the gospel, which is that we worship a God who is actually good and actually has your best in mind. We worship a God who actually loves you. And he doesn't just love you. He loves all people. The most famous gospel passage in all of scripture in John 3, right? What, is, what does Jesus say is the reason he entered into the world to do his gospel work? What got Jesus here to do his gospel work? The love of God. For God so loved the world, Jesus came. And he even goes on to say, I'm not here to condemn you, but that you might, that you might experience salvation. Beloved, God loves you. He loves you. He loves every person you know. He loves every person you've heard of. He loves every person you've ever seen. And he loves every person you've never heard of or never seen and don't know. He loves all people with a deep, abiding, passionate, pursuing, patient love. Because this is at the core of the gospel message. We worship a God of love, a God of patient love, a God of pursuing love, a God that is calling people unto himself and is actively doing the work of tearing down the barriers of our sin and our resistance to the gospel that we might know him. God actually is good. He actually loves you. He actually has good in mind for you. I call you beloved when I speak, when I'm preaching, right? Beloved of Jesus, I say that to you guys, because it is true. You are the beloved of Jesus, the apple of his eye. He cares for you passionately. He pursues you. He chases you. And hear this, church. It does not matter what circumstances you exist within. It does not matter what things you have chosen to do. 
It does not matter what, what wrongs, what ways the curse has affected you beyond your own control. It does not matter what place you were brought up, what culture you were brought up in, what family of origin you have. It does not matter what things you have pursued or not pursued, what evils you have wrought or avoided, what addictions you have fallen into, what wrong or evil things you... It does not matter. God loves you. He loves you. Exactly as you are, exactly where you are. He desires that you might repent that you might find life and freedom and joy in him. And if you're in this space, you're hearing this going, yes and amen. And you're, and you're hoping that all the lost people in the room will hear that. I want to encourage you. This does not cease to be true because you're a follower of Jesus. You could have been following Jesus for the last 50 years. He still loves you like that. He is still calling you unto himself just like that. All those sins that you still love, all those things you still keep covered up, all those hurts that you have not given up unto him, those wrongs that were done to you a long time ago, that you've done everything you could to avoid dealing with, those health or mental or spiritual issues that you're struggling with, those things that make you dislike who you are, those things that make you doubt the love of God for you. Beloved, they do not matter in the eyes of our Jesus. He loves you. He loves you. He's calling out to you. He's pursuing you. He has grace for you. And by the way, that is true of everyone. Even the people you don't like. Even the people you hate. Even the people you are scared of. Even the people you see on the news who do terrible things to other people. Even, beloved, even friends, co-workers, family members, who have been burned and hurt by the church and told you they have no desire to be a part of this thing you're a part of. Even grandkids, even cousins, even aunts and uncles who have told you the church has nothing good and it's abominable and they don't want that message. Beloved, God loves them and is calling them and pursuing them. If there is breath in your lungs, God is not done with you. There is no place you reach on this earth where you're too far removed from the grace and love of our God. There is no person. There's no, there's no wrong anyone has accomplished. There's no hard-heartedness. There's no wound anyone. There's nothing that makes a person who's still alive walking this earth unable to receive the gift of love from Jesus. He loves all. He desires that all would come and find repentance. So, beloved, I'm going to end with this. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. I'm confident that some of us in this space today, we just need to be reminded that God loves us. And if that's you in this space, man, if there's just some piece of you that is on fire in your heart while I'm talking, and you know the doubts that exist within you, the hurts that exist within you, the sin patterns you can't seem to let go of, the struggle that doesn't seem to go away, and you just, you're just stuck on this, beloved. Hear me. You are the beloved of Jesus, the apple of his eye, precious in his sight, made in his image, died on the cross with you in mind, paid for your sins, and gave you his righteousness. That is true. That is who you are. 
And if you're in this space and other faces and names are popping up in your heart, people who you love and care about, who just seem so distant from Jesus, whose hearts seem so far gone, the names that wake you up at night and get you praying or maybe just get you discouraged. Beloved, they are not too far from Jesus. Look, look what he did in Philippi. Look what he overcame. You honestly believe, you honestly believe that the God who created this church, who saved these souls, can't overcome the barriers of the people you love, the people you know, your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers, your family. Beloved, this is our God. He seeks and saves the lost. He works in all sorts of ways to bring all sorts of people unto himself. So I'm going to encourage you guys to do this. They're going to sing this song over you guys. It's this song we know. It's a beautiful one, the wonderful cross, reflecting on the work of Jesus, the, 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 the function of the gospel that drew us all from death to life. And if you're in this space today and you're just, you're just beat up and you have forgotten the depths of the love of Jesus for you, I want to encourage you to let these words wash over you. Let Jesus remind you how much he loves you. And if you need to stand up and sing that song at the top of your lungs, you go right ahead. And if you need to sit there and let those words be sung over you, you go right ahead. And if you're in this place and your heart is broken and burdened for someone far from Jesus who you long to see come to life, but you just don't see a way, I want to encourage you to speak their name in this place. Bring their name to Jesus. Share your heart with him. Beloved, he saved the church at Philippi. Paul and Silas got to be a part of that. You can be a part of this work. You can pray, you can keep sharing, you can keep hoping, you can keep inviting. There's breath in their lungs, God has not done. I'd encourage you to speak that name to Jesus out loud in this space while the song's being sung. And when the song's done, Jesse's going to come up and lead us in communion. We're going to we're going to taste and see if the Lord is good. And come to the table and remember how much He loves us. So, beloved, join me. Meet with Jesus. Do the work you need to do this afternoon. Survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but lost. Oh